we see this with people who get bored in relationships. They'll say like, well, I'm bored. And I always have to ask them, are you bored in the relationship or are you bored in your own life? Are you expecting that person to be your source of excitement and passion and thrill? Because work can be exciting, friends can be exciting, social, hobbies, anything, sports, whatever you're into can be exciting. But oftentimes we are turning to this one person as the source of all emotional fulfillment and it gets misdirected. Dr. Jess, welcome back. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you are, uh, you're doing a lot of cool things. You're constantly traveling. You're working with a lot of cool people. Um, what's going on in the world of Dr. Jess? Mm, you know, I like to stay on the move. I'm like a shark. If I stay still, <laughs> I can't handle it. But uh, yeah. yeah, just working, speaking. I, I say I'm a speaker, but I'm not really. I'm a facilitator. Like I facilitate workshops, mostly for couples and mostly for people who own businesses and their partners because they've kind of got everything in life. They've got the finances worked out. Um, they've got everything everybody dreams of. But if you don't have a happy relationship or happy relationships, what's mm. the point? Yeah. Happy relationships are important. <laughs> yeah. They, they literally determine the quality of your life, right? So if you have happy relationships, you have a happy life. And it's not just your intimate relationships. It's your friendships, your working relationships. We know that the amount of stress we're under when we're working with people that we either don't like or struggle to get along with, uh, we know that we take that home and vice versa. So when we're unhappy at home, we take that stress into the workplace. Yeah. Well, that was actually one of the topics that you and I talked about sort of chatting and covering here is how the relationship at home can negatively impact how you treat your employees if you're an owner operator or how you interact with your coworkers, your boss, and, and so forth. What are you seeing in that realm, in that space? I'm seeing that that's why I'm in business, ultimately, is that now business owners, leaders are realizing that if we don't invest in, we know, the overall health and wellness of our staff and our leadership, that it's going to cost us in terms of the bottom line, in terms of productivity, in terms of friction in the workplace. And so people, you know, of course, are focused on mental health and physical health, and they have yoga sessions, and they might have, you know, a psychologist come in and talk to them. But now they're realizing we actually have to support the relational health of mm -hmm. our leaders, of our entire community, entire entire staff, basically. So if they can help them to cultivate the tools, work on communication, work on emotional literacy, give them the time and the space they need to make sure that they're invested in their relationships outside of the workplace, it pays off in the workplace in terms of not only relationships, but the way the whole team functions. Sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm was, so sorry. That was, I, was just, I just realized it was in there. <laughs> oh, in the shot. Yeah, I was just trying to subtly move it, <laughs> hoping that none of you would know. I don't think anyone saw. <laughs> and then Poncho subtle? switches over to the main one as they're watching me move it. Thank you, Poncho. Was it, was it, was it subtle? It looked like was, he was taking it away from you. Yeah, I'm, sort just, of. Like, I'm like, I'm like, is, don't touch. I don't, I'm like, did I leave something on the table? <laughs> no, I just, I, I didn't want to ruin the, you know, like we've got the books and everything. I just wanted to look aesthetically pleasing. That's all. <laughs> so, so, okay. So the, the amount of friction that hope happens at home, you know, we carry that. We're, we're very, like, I've grown up in work environments and I say grown up because I've spent so many years working where there's a lot of like, you leave your personal stuff at home. That's very hard to do. Almost impossible. It's impossible. Right? When you're upset about something, you can't just check it out at the door. You can use different mindfulness practices, different strategies to leave things, you know, in another spot for a later time. But it is near impossible to just get rid of anxiety, distress, feelings of hopelessness. <laughs> you know, when we think about emotions, I often think about a cup filling up and so you can only handle so much so if I'm already stressed from for example what's going on in my marriage or what I'm dealing with with my kids or even in a friendship or something with my parents depending on you know we've got the sandwich generation where we're looking after kids and we're looking after yeah. older parents we bring that into the workplace right we are already exhausted like if I've already done x number of bicep curls 
and then I want to go do more and more, my muscle is tired. And it's the same thing when it comes to emotions. And it flows both ways, right? So the same thing is true if you're in a very stressful working environment, if you have friction with a coworker, if you're dealing with a leader who isn't perhaps showing you the respect and appreciation that you need in order to thrive, you take those frustrations, you take those exhaustions, you take those stresses home as well. And then oftentimes we take it out on the people closest to us, right? Oftentimes it's just a matter of proximity. You're here and so I'll blame you. And this has to do with like emotional deficits. So if I don't feel appreciated at the workplace and I'm already kind of exhausted from that, then I go home and, you know, maybe my partner does something tiny that feels a little neglectful or a little bit dismissive. I can say, you don't show me any appreciation. Mm. When I actually arrived at this conversation with you, I walked through my front door at home feeling unappreciated. And then there was just li- this little tiny thing that pushed me over the edge. And that works again in both directions. So we just have to be, I think, a little bit more aware of our emotions. And then from the corporate side, we're seeing leaders, we're seeing HR teams invest in helping people to understand understand what they're feeling, having the tools to cope, having strategies to relate better, like from from the boardroom to the bedroom to the kitchen and everywhere in between. Why is it so important, though, that or rather, should we intentionally try to, to separate work and home? Like, should we make conscious efforts to be like, you know what? Yeah, work was shitty today, but I'm going to intentionally try to block that out because home is home. I think that's a great question, and I don't think it's a yes or no. I think that it's valuable to have strategies to not bring the nonsense of work home, right? So I think about this uh, one client I had, and she ran she ran a big television network in the States, and she said that when she'd get into her garage, she'd park her car, she had dealt with so much nonsense at work, like she did not have an easy job, and she'd just sit there for a moment and remind herself that the two people inside, so her child and her partner, had nothing to do with that. So she didn't want to take it out on them. them. Having said that, we can't completely separate it because everything in our lives, it's it's fluid. And our partners and our families and the people we love are a huge source of support. So sometimes you want to go home and say, oh my God, you're not going to believe what happened. Mm-hmm. Just to get that validation, just to feel heard, maybe even in some cases to get advice. Not everybody wants that. And that's where we have to communicate on all fronts. So I might go home and tell my partner, here's what's going on with my work. And all I want him to say is, oh my gosh, that must be so hard. Whereas his response might be like, oh, well, you probably should try A, B, and C. So, I mean, it sounds silly, but that may be what he wants. And so he's treating me the way he wants to be treated, but not necessarily the way I want to be treated. Mm. So I do this, like this, this and that activity with couples where it's, when I'm feeling this or experiencing this, that is what I want from you. This is what I don't want from you. So for I know can, I can talk to my situation. I just want to be heard. I want to kind of go on and on and on and say my piece. And I want my partner to kind of just kind of validate me a little. Whereas Brandon definitely wants solutions. Like he's like, no, 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 just tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. And so we'll each do the opposite or we used to. And now we kind of understand each other better. And we also know to check in and say like, is do you want my thoughts on this? And actually, just even that question, I think, can be disarming where I might not be open to your thoughts. But mm-hmm. then when you let it be my decision, I'm like, oh, yeah, actually, Brandon usually has a pretty good perspective on this. Tell me your thoughts. Yeah. What if the the other person is not in a position to receive? Like you say you come home and like you want to just say, like, I want to talk out everything that's happened. And that's all I want to do right now. But let's say in this equation, Brandon is not in a position to receive all that information how do you how does he better communicate that and how do you receive that that's that's a really important piece because we do have to ask permission before we kind of emotionally download on people and it doesn't always have to be like hey is it okay if i talk to you about this incident at the water cooler sometimes it's about with with an intimate partner oftentimes it's body language oftentimes it's like can i tell you about this thing that happened or do you want it later maybe they're still finishing their day maybe they're dealing with the kids maybe they're dealing with their own stuff so i think it's really a matter of consent. So oftentimes when we talk about consent, you know, I'm in sex education, people think I'm, I'm talking about sex per se, but consent and the way we cultivate consent in relationships is across the board, right? I can tell you doing what I do for a living, people just come and tell me their problems, right? Like I, you know, at trade shows or when I'm on a conference floor, I'm about to walk on stage and somebody will come up to me and share a very serious, heavy disclosure. And I'm supposed to go on stage and entertain and educate, you know, 400 people with a ton of energy. 
so we have, I think a lot of people have difficulty with boundaries, knowing when it's okay to share and when it's not. With an intimate partner, I think we know each other a little bit better, but we do, as you said, have to communicate it. Like he can say like, I, I don't, like not now, or can we talk about that later? Or can you give me a moment? Or I'm actually still focused on my emails. Uh, I think we just need to let each other know and... We need to not take things personally. So, you know, issues arise in relationships because when Brandon sets a boundary, I tell myself a story, right? So he's still working on his emails. I come in and tell him about, I don't know, the camera angle wasn't right. And I can't believe, you're not going to believe how bad this was. Uh, or, you he know, tried maybe, to move the remote <laughs> Or maybe it's something actually more serious, but I'm not entitled to yeah. his time at this moment. Mm-hmm. But I think that you want to cultivate a relationship. And again, not just intimate relationships, friendships, uh, working relationships, where you know that you can say no, where you know you can say, you know what, shelve that for a moment. But I think actually we need to do a much better job asking people, like, do you have the space for this right now? Or do you have the spoons for this? Can you handle this right now? And I think that actually since the pandemic, one of the outcomes of the pandemic was that we are a lot more open with our emotions. We tend to be a little bit more open about sharing. And that is a beautiful thing, but we also have to be mindful of time and space and people's emotional capacity. So if you do share with a partner and that partner does not reciprocate or tells you like, I'm, I'm just, I can't, what advice would you give to the person who still needs the outlet? Oh, well, this really speaks to the fact that we need multiple sources of emotional support. The problem with, I think, this kind of very focused on romance and monogamy and the one and that type of culture that we're in is that we expect that person to be our everything, right? They're our business confidant, they're our best friend, they're our lover, they're our co-parent, they're our roommate. And so I think we need to have multiple sources of support. That's why we need friends. That's why we have family. That's why have we have therapists and counselors. So if you find that people around you are saying, or indicating, they may not say it out loud, that like, this is a lot, You're, it's a lot, you might want to think about, well, should I maybe be paying someone who has the skills, who has the tools, who has the space and the differentiation to talk about these issues? Well, we all have to get, I think, a little bit, I don't want to say stronger, but more skilled at dealing with rejection, mm-hmm. right? Like, you just can't have everything you want in a relationship. You can have a lot of what you want, but you can't ever have everything you want at every moment that you want it. So again, I'll just speak for myself. Like I feel like I'm in a relationship that's full of love and support. I feel like if anything was important, Brandon would drop absolutely everything for me. And he's got his own thing going on. He can't always be there to solve every little one of every single one of my problems. Uh, And sometimes my problems feel bigger than they are because I'm blowing them up. And what will happen is if your partner says, yeah, just give me like 20 minutes, I actually have to finish this meeting or finish this email. 20 minutes later, I might not feel so flooded. I might not feel so triggered. And I've learned in that moment, this is, I think, an amazing teachable moment for ourselves, to self-soothe. Like, I've learned to calm myself down. I've learned to distract myself. Coping mechanisms are also okay, right? We don't have to feel and examine and understand every single emotion, right? This other piece around emotional literacy, I think we've seen it change with generations. We've seen it change during and throughout the pandemic where people are more in tune with our feelings. That's an amazing thing. But also, it's okay sometimes not to explain every feeling. It's okay not to express every single feeling, right? Like if I have a bad day, maybe I have an anxious day or a day when I don't get that much done, and then I get hard on myself. I have secondary emotions, which are the emotions that are in response to emotions, right? I'm being hard on myself. What's wrong with you? You shouldn't be anxious. You have a good life. So I think that we have to practice emotional literacy so we know what we feel, we know how it shows up in our body, we know what we can do to maybe assuage some of those emotions that don't feel good, we know what we can do to garner more of those positive emotions, but also we're allowed to be imperfect, we're allowed to have bad days, we don't have to get at the source of every single feeling in our bodies. And I like that you said the it can't be all reliant on the one person, because you said that the last time you were here too, oh. that you can't expect the one person to solve everything for you and be that one source it's an emotional dump of everything and that's a lot for them to take on especially when they've got their own things going on yeah it's often a misguided deficit as well right if i'm feeling something and my relationship my intimate relationship is the sole 
or almost the sole focus of my life, when I'm feeling that thing, sometimes I'll start to blame the relationship, right? We see this with people who get bored in relationships. They'll say like, well, I'm bored. And I always have to ask them, are you bored in the relationship? Or are you bored in your own life? Are you expecting that person to be your source of excitement and passion and thrill? Because work can be exciting, friends can be exciting, social, hobbies, anything, sports, whatever you're into can be exciting. But oftentimes we are turning to this one person as the source of all emotional fulfillment and it gets misdirected. And is that when people typically start looking outside the relationship? You know, sometimes it is. Uh, I think what we have to realize is that it's normal sometimes for sex not to be super, super exciting. It's normal not to experience ongoing passion without actually investing in creating passionate moments, right? I don't know if we talked about this last time, but you know, when you first meet someone, there's this limerence phase, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's so exciting and people expect that to be sustained over the course of a relationship, but that doesn't necessarily happen unless you do things to make it a little bit exciting. So yeah, the moment they feel like, oh, the magic is gone, we think, oh, well, that's that's the test of the relationship. Something must be awry when in fact you have to actually create that excitement. And you're right, people start looking elsewhere and my God, it's easy to be excited by something new. Like, I, I mean, I can feel a rush in my body just thinking of it. Not, And it's not the idea of someone's new body. Yeah. It's the idea of a new experience. And it's the idea of the unknown. It's the fear of rejection. Like part of the excitement of meeting somebody new is that you don't really know if they're into you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then when they do express interest into you, it's some sort of new validation and novelty feels really good. It feels good in the bedroom, it feels good in relationships, it feels good at work, right? It's the same reason we see people sometimes jump from job to job, business to business, because the start of things is very exciting, but sustaining them over time is really challenging. But I think it can be less so if we start to diversify the ways in which we interact so that we're not doing every single thing with that same person. How do you keep finding like new things though? Together. Yeah. Well, you have to do things separately. You have to spend time apart. You know, I think it's really interesting when you have separate lives that, you know, you weave back together so that you actually have something to talk about, right? If I know everything. Oh, sexu sexually, I mean, like sexually. Oh, sex it's never ending, man. <laughs> there are so many things you can do together. I mean, I think when people think about sex, they think about the physical. They think about like how they touch one another, mm -hmm. techniques they can try. They think about positions. My God, people are so hung up on positions. And like the position pales in comparison to how you're making them feel, mm -hmm. right? If you can tap into new emotions, if you can tap into the subversive, everybody with sex is often about the safety, right? Like how do I make them feel respected? How do I make them feel attractive? How do they, I make them feel loved? How do they make, make it so comfortable that we can try new things? Cool, but if you stop there, you're in trouble. So if you can tap into like the subversive emotional elements of sex getting turned on by a, a little bit of tension, a little bit of risk, a little bit of, for some people, it's going to be dominance, submission, humiliation, subjugation, um, jealousy, all of these different emotions. What's subjugation? So it's you know, being subjugated to someone, like doing, being, you could be physically at their feet, it could be emotionally, they're taking control, putting mm -hmm. you below them. So there's power dynamics gotcha. there. And of course, on the surface, you know, if you take those 10 words, people are going to be like, that's awful. Why is the sexologist yeah. saying that I should do whatever my partner says and be subjugated to them? Of, of course not. But in the context of a safe, loving, consensual, consensual yes. relationship. And that's how you keep it exciting for years. That's how like 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, you can still be trying new things because emotional experiences almost always feel new. Physical ones, less so. Relational, practical, daily ones, less so. But when there's an uncomfortable emotion, it never gets comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. So like, for example, if you've been hurt, you can kind of remember how that feels. But the next time somebody causes a similar type of hurt, you're not prepared for it. So that's the bad side of it. But the good side is when there's something that's exciting and uncomfortable, it's like feeling it again for the very first time. So if we want to speak, I'm speaking a little bit theoretically, but if we want to speak a little bit more practically, it could be simply that you do new stuff together. Like uh, we're in the city of Toronto right now. In Toronto, there are a number of sex clubs. Have you talked about sex clubs before? 
Briefly. Briefly, yeah. yeah. Was it with me or with, with someone else? <laughs> All you our know, sex conversations are mostly with you. <laughs> You've had two sex conversations in your life. <laughs> both, both with you in I'm, this room. <laughs> I'm glad I'm here. But I mean, the idea of going to a club or going to a resort, I'm heading out uh, in a couple of weeks on a cruise that is a nude cruise for, not nude, but there are areas where you're allowed to be nude. And it's not just nudism, which is separate from sex. In addition to being allowed to be nude, there's a playroom. In addition to the playroom, there are like erotically themed nights and erotic entertainment and burlesque dancers and all of those exciting things. And so it leaves from Venice and I think it goes down to Croatia and then up the, co- the Amalfi Coast. Like you're going to beautiful, exciting places every day where you can do the things that, you know, we normally do. You go to museums, you go to yeah. galleries, you drink wine in the middle of the day, all that fun stuff. But in addition, there's all this fun, sexy stuff at night. So I'm not saying you have to go straight to the cruise, but most people have never done those things, which means they're new. So there is so much stuff out there you can try. And sometimes it's just about conversations. Like I find that uh, if you can talk about new things, even if you're not going to do them, right? I think that we're kind of lucky right now with the content we're streaming, whether it be this or something that you're watching, you know, on, on HBO Max or something, there's so many different scenarios, so many different fantasies, so many different relational dynamics that we weren't talking about five years ago. We never even saw them in the media. And now there's this opportunity to say like, well, what do you think of that? Right. And it doesn't mean that you have to have the right answer. I think one of the mistakes we make in relationships is that we think we need to be on the same page as our partner. We don't. Right. You don't want to be so divergent that your values are misaligned and that you're totally incompatible. But if we disagree on something, if you're into something and your partner isn't, that's okay. It's an opportunity for conversation. And that conversation can be exciting and hot and novel. How do you open the door to those conversations? I think a lot of people struggle with that. Yeah, I I think that... Out of fear of like making the other person feel less attractive, like they're not into them. Yes. Or like somehow scaring them off. (laughs) Yes, both sides. So I think first and foremost, we have to lay the groundwork so that there is safety in those conversations. So if you're in a rocky place, if you never have intimate conversations about your feelings, that's why I talk about feelings so Mm. much. Because if you're going to talk about threesomes, you probably also have to be able to talk about when you feel confident and when you feel vulnerable and what it feels like to show up in your body when you feel insecure or jealous. So you have to have the emotional conversations first. And if you've laid the groundwork to create the emotional safety that you can have uncomfortable conversations, that's when you can say, hey, I was watching this show. And I don't know, they say X percent of people have fantasized about a threesome. What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. Then you're putting the ball in their court to see what their reaction is to kind of test the waters. And I think what's really important when it comes to sex specifically and fantasies and anything that's outside kind of the monogamous vanilla norm is that their first reaction may not be their final reaction. So people can get their backs up, we can get we can feel very intimidated, we can feel lesser than than, we can feel like we're not good enough or we're not enough. But uh, I think that once you keep the conversation going, once they have a moment to breathe, sometimes they can start to come around. And I'm not saying, oh, they'll come around to having a threesome with you. Like I, I, That's what people want. They're like, yeah. how do I get my partner to? That's not my job. Um, I really feel like my job is to just hopefully offer people some tools to have conversations and normalize mm-hmm. these conversations and normalize imperfections. Uh, we were talking today, my partner and I, about like this three-step approach to help people who are struggling in their relationships because I'm running into a lot of couples right now who are at a point where they're they're really disconnected, whether it's because of an affair or because of just emotional withdrawal or because they're running into compatibility issues. And not everybody is going to therapy. The reality is like not everybody has the time, not everybody has the money, not everybody has a willing partner. So what I try and do is kind of provide tools. So one of the tools is the why, how, what conversation. So the why is, okay, we're in this difficult place. We're sort of at an impasse. And I'll be honest, most of these people are trying to figure out, A, how do we work it out? But should we even be working it out? Mm. So the why is like, why do you want this? Why do you value this relationship? Why do you value and what do you like? Why do you really like this person? And I'll hear a lot from people who are like, well, we have a great family. We have a great life. We have we have two beautiful kids. And OK, that's a start. That's a, a nice idea and foundation but can we get into your actual relational why like Mm -hmm. why i can tell you in a a moment why i want to be with my partner like Mm -hmm. really what it is that draws me to this and i think the why is so important for establishing that there's mutual commitment to this because if we can't get past the why it's hard to get to the how and the how is how do you feel 
Like, so you're at this impasse. How are you feeling? How do you want to feel? What can you do to feel more of that, right? So we start with our why. We get into how and the how is the feeling thing. And then the what. Like, what do you want? What do you want out of this? Because couples will spend hours, days, months, years fighting about nothing and never get to what is the outcome you are seeking. And with that outcome, what are you willing to compromise? Because, again, you don't get to have everything you want. I yeah. think 80-20. Like 80, I mean, to me, 80 is 100. If you can get 80 of what you want in anything, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. Wine should be a 92, but 80 in everything else, <laughs> right? Hey, wine starts at a 50, though. So if relationships can start at a 50, that'd be a good thing. So, and, and then, like, you're, what are you willing to compromise? And then the what's are, what can you do? to get more of that mm-hmm. before I go to my partner. Because again, everyone's like, well, if he would just, if she would just, if they would just, what can you do to get that? And as we were talking about this, we started talking about uh, an argument that we had had recently. And I won't get into the details of the argument, but what I remember is I was flooded. I was angry. I'm like an angry rhinoceros. Like I don't yell and scream, but inside I can just flip a switch where I love you so much. And then I'm like, I hate you. <laughs> and it's a problem I have like, you know, family, you know, growing up, all that, all that jazz. But I remember Brandon turning to me and be like, don't worry, we're going to work this out. And a couple times he said that, like, there was this why, like, we're going to be okay. And I'm committed to this. And that just that reaffirming um, helped so much. It wasn't like, you know, a big serious argument, but we don't usually have a ton of them. So it felt really bad for me, Mm -hmm. but just that reassurance is so important. So all of this comes down to being able to know how we feel and then what we want and then communicate it. So how do you start the conversation? I said that, yes, you have to normalize talking about difficult subjects. And then, you know, when it comes to sex, I think pop culture is a great place to start. I think it's great to say, hey, I was listening to this podcast on the plane and I heard (laughs) about sex clubs. How do you feel about that? And knowing that my partner's response might be like, dear God, no woman, you're a pervert. Hopefully that's not their response. Hopefully they're able to respond honestly, but without judgment. Right. So compatibility is, you know, something we create together and you really can't create compatibility where there's judgment. Um, you can be uncomfortable, you can disagree. So if I say, hey, what do you think of this sex club? And my partner says to me like, ooh, that's not really something that works for me. Can they bring it into, the vo- into their vocabulary to say something like, but I'm glad you brought it up. Like, let's talk about it, right? right. And let's get into like, well, what appeals to you about a sex club? Yeah, I guess, well, I guess my next question then becomes like, how do you find the middle ground on something like that? Because if one person comes in and says, I want to go to a sex club, and then the other person goes, I'm not really sure I even want to be having this conversation, but I will have the conversation with you. It's just not for me. What is the middle ground there? Well, I think the reality is you don't have to find middle ground. Like okay. you don't have to find the 50-50 where it's like one of us goes to the sex club or we only go to the sex club mm-hmm. for like 30 minutes. There are some things that you're just not going to do. Right. And you're going to have to decide what are the things that actually really matter to me. Um, as the person who wants the thing versus the person who's perhaps drawing the line. Mm -hmm. For the person who's drawing the line, I do challenge you to think about, like, why not? Why do you want your partner to not experience something? I understand why you don't want to go, but why is it that you don't want your partner to to go? And maybe sex club isn't a, a great example, but I think it's, you know, it is fairly low risk to go to a sex club like you don't have to do anything you can just have a drink there's no guarantee that you'll even see sex there's you know depending on where you are in the club uh and i'm not saying going to se- go to a sex club okay I'm, I'm just saying it's not that out there yeah. but i think that for the person who wants to draw a line in a way that tells their partner you know in the contract of this relationship i'm not okay with that i really want you to ask yourself why because i do believe we have a short time on earth We've got a good time on earth if you're lucky. I mean, I know that life is hard, but living in a place like Canada or North America, like we're we're pretty lucky as the world goes. Some people more than others, obviously. But we've got the short time on earth. Don't you want the person or the people that you love to experience all the richness that life has to offer? And again, please don't use us as an excuse to be like, don't you want me to be happy? I want to go to the (laughs) sex club. But... Can we at least have the conversation? Uh, and I think about this oftentimes even around monogamy. When we run into, you know, people want to try different things or open up the relationship, I, I really, first of all, we've got to get into the why. But I think it's also really important to get into the why not, because so much of our why not is the notion of protecting ourselves, the notion that we can 
proof the relationship. We can kind of put a bumper or a bubble around it to ensure that it's going to be fine. And assuming, for example, that having a monogamous relationship is going to assure you that you stay together is not realistic, right? We have data, for for example, I'll just use this one as an example, and I know it really upsets people talking about consensual non-monogamy. I'll use open relationships. It's an easier word, I think. I know that they can be very triggering for people, but the data shows that we have the same similar communication levels, we see similar trust levels, we see similar satisfaction levels, regardless of whether you're open or you're monogamous. But we have this notion that one is better than the other. I know I jumped kind of deep into the deep end very quickly on that one, but we have to ask ourselves, why do we believe something to be true, right? We've got close to a 50% divorce rate. We've got data that says 24% of people admit to cheating on their partners. The number is actually higher. So those are numbers that we need to just be mindful of because the reality is, you know, we say, don't be a statistic. You are a statistic. You we fall into either that 50 or the other 50 <laughs> yeah. and there are no guarantees. Now, I think there are things in relationships that you can do. I don't want to say to affair proof or divorce proof, but to reduce your risk. And those things are open communication and pushing your boundaries and being willing to be vulnerable. Right. When I talked about getting into your, you know, how, how are you feeling? People are very good at saying they feel happy or that they feel sad or that they feel angry, like mad, sad, glad. And that's where it stops. And most of us, like our family or of origins, that's kind of all we ever saw. We our parents were either happy with us. Maybe they were upset about something else if it was something serious. Like many of us Mm -hmm. didn't grow up in families where sadness was even expressed. Right. Like if there was a death, then, yes, they showed sadness. But not little failures or little incidents that make us sad every single day. And then there was anger, right? I think a lot of us grew up around. Yeah. <laughs> anger was one that came My across Middle very Eastern quickly. household anger was, uh, yeah. <laughs> and we saw anger not only expressed, but we saw anger prevail. Yes. So we yeah. received the message mm-hmm. that if I'm angry, I win. If I'm yeah. angry, I'm powerful. If I'm angry, I control this situation, which in the big picture, from a mental health, from a heart health, from a relational health perspective is obviously not true, but that's what it looked like on the surface. So we're willing to say we're angry, but are we willing to say like, I feel hopeless or I feel insecure or I feel unsure or I'm afraid of losing you, right? We don't come out and say, I'm afraid of losing you when our partner says, you know, I wanna go to a sex club or I'm afraid I'm not gonna be good enough or I'm nervous that I'm not gonna fit in or I'm nervous you're gonna be more turned on by somebody else than me or I'm nervous that, you know, there's gonna be pressure. We say like, no, you're a pervert. Right. And those those types and maybe not in those exact words, like we're trying to shame the person. We're trying to kill the conversation. Yeah. Right. We're shaming them with a conversation killer. And I, I just think that every pain point, every disagreement, every thing that seems like an impasse is just an opportunity to have a conversation. So when you're finding middle ground, first of all, you both have to be committed to it. So let's kind of take an easier example. Um, like I think about threesomes. Okay, because everybody asks me about threesomes. It doesn't matter where I am in the world. Threesomes, threesomes, threesomes. Because there's this normalization of threesomes through porn, right? Like, you know, porn is our measure of what we expect our sex lives to be like, as unrealistic as it may be. So your partner comes and says, like, I want to have a threesome. Because I get these emails all the time. Like, Dr. Jess, can you set up a threesome for me? This is not what I do, people. (laughs) Like, literally, I'm a high school teacher. Like, I train teachers. (laughs) And how I support people in their relationships. I am not your threesome maiden. Yeah, hold on, let me go through the database. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay, I want to have a threesome. My partner doesn't want to have a threesome. Great. It's an opportunity for a conversation about what you want out of the threesome. So why do you want to have a threesome? Like, is it because you want to feel all the physical hands all over you? Well, that's actually something we can mimic, we can create together. Is it because... You know, in my clientele uh, with the men, they want to have threesomes like for the power to show that they can do it, right? To check it off their list because they have a lot of power in life. They have a lot of success. And it's just this thing that they kind of want to do for the power. And that's not a criticism, by the way. I say that with neutrality. Like, it's fine if you want to feel powerful. It's fine if you want to feel desired, right? That's another thing for straight men in particular. You don't get as many opportunities in life to feel desired. You're taught that you're supposed to pursue, you're supposed to beg, you're supposed to do everything to get that partner. People don't walk around telling each other like, man, you look good. As often as, you know, women, straight women or all women get that opportunity. So that feeling of being desired is a fairly, I won't say universal, but close to universal 
desire for most people. So some, like a lot of my clients are like, I just want to feel, I love the idea of them wanting me, right? And okay, cool. So that's another feeling that we can play with together. I'm pointing at both of you, but I just mean one partner. Like that's what something I can make my partner feel, Right. right? We can play with that. Or maybe it's the taboo element, or maybe it's the adoration. Like they just want to be kind of treated like a queen or a king or royalty. Well, we can play with that too. So that's where an actual middle ground exists, right? Mm. We can play with the fan- fantasy together. We can talk about it. We can even play it out. You can blindfold and pretend, you know, I was talking about like the two tongue technique <laughs> where there's like one tongue and then a wet finger and you're playing with two tongues on the body. You're like, yeah, everybody wants you. Yeah, I want to share you. Yes, I saw the waiter checking you out. Yeah, yeah. But you can play <laughs> maybe with a little bit more enthusiasm <laughs> than that. But you can play with it. Or maybe it's watching a scene around a threesome. Maybe you push farther and you have some sort of a digital engagement with someone, like with a cam model. Mm. Um, But importantly, you want to respect your partner's boundaries on one hand. And on the other hand, and I'm not suggesting that they're pitted against each other, but oftentimes this is the case. You want to respect their boundaries on one hand and you want to make sure that they feel like fulfilled and get to try new things and enjoy themselves, right? When When you really think about it, you're with this person if you decide to be monogamous, you're with them forever. <laughs> Hopefully that's what people are trying to do. And is it going to hurt you if they flirt with someone else? Like how is the foundation of this loving, caring, trusting, meaningful, rich relationship going to crumble because someone else pays attention to them? Right, I'm not talking about actually having the threesome, I'm talking about like a flirtation. Yeah. Or if they fantasize about someone else, what does that say? Does that say that they don't want to be having sex with you at that moment? No, like oftentimes they're fantasizing to get in the mood to have sex with you. And I know that is very upsetting for people. Like the idea of like, yeah, I'm thinking of something. Someone says that, it sounds <laughs> yeah, really bad. But, but why? Why are you, I meet you, I'm attracted to you, I love you, I care about you, we have kids together, we mop the floor together, we go to Home Depot together on Sunday, and you're supposed to be the only person that excites me in the world? That's not realistic. Being together, being monogamous can be absolutely realistic, but not being attracted to other people, not having fleeting thoughts, not having dreams that you can't control, not allowing yourself to tap into what's going on in your head. There is a lot of control that we and possession that we exercise. Possession, jealousy, a lot of that. Because we think it will protect us, right? Because we protect our own feelings right. and we think we're protecting the relationship, but not necessarily so. Not in a, and I know this is like very controversial, very upsetting for people. And I want to say, you don't have to do everything. You don't have to talk about everything. You don't have to do it all right now. You don't have to go to a sex club. You don't have to talk about threesomes. But I hope you're open to talking about things that turn you on, things that make you excited. Like when you ask about like, how do you keep finding things mm-hmm. new after eight years, 10 years, 20 years? If you can keep talking, like, sorry, the fantasies, the pot of fantasies is kind of never ending, yeah. right? Think about porn, man. They never stop making that. <laughs> People yeah. keep consuming it, and there are so many different options. Porn is bad, right? My question is, is it watching porn that's bad? Is it masturbating to porn that's bad? Is it the master? But like, there's, there's, I've, I've heard like that watching porn isn't good for men, or like masturbating to porn isn't good, or you see a lot of stuff online, something like something along around. those lines. So it's. There's a fine line there. Like, how much porn can I watch? I was going to say, you see a lot of stuff <laughs> online of, like, guys who've excelled at life in some capacity, and they refer to... Not watching. Like, I've done, like, I, not I, watching porn, like... They don't watch Binges, and it's just like, like okay, mm-hmm. But, like, I don't... All right. So, if porn is interfering with your life to the point that you can't go to work, you're not eating, you're not sleeping, you're not exercising, you can't maintain relationships because you just can't stop watching porn and masturbating, then I think it's a problem. If you like porn, if it turns you on, if you use it in a way that feels good, it's not necessarily problematic. I'm just upsetting people today, but porn, (laughs) porn is scapegoated. First of all, I'm going to say this. There's porn and there's ethical porn. If you pay for your porn, it is far more likely to be ethical porn. A lot of the stuff, most of the stuff you're seeing on the tube sites is ripped. And those artists are not necessarily treated fairly or paid fairly. So there are many options out there for ethical porn. So that means that the performers are compensated fairly. It means that their wishes are respected. It means that they sit down and talk about what they want to do that day, what they're feeling. Um, There's more open, honest communication. Of course, there's testing, although there's pretty good testing across the industry. So some recommendations, royal fetish films, 
Jasmine and King Noir. So Jasmine is also, she's a performer, she's a producer, she's a therapist, double master's degree, absolutely brilliant couple. They have uh, a whole production house called Royal Fetish Films. There's Erica Lust out of Barcelona. There are, oh my gosh, there are so many now. There's Afterglow XO. So if you are paying for your porn, you are more likely consuming ethical porn. So I just want to start there. Mm -hmm. Secondly, porn gets scapegoated because people cheat. They blame porn. They don't invest in their sex life and their relationship. They blame porn. They are staying up too late. They blame porn. Porn is not inherently the problem. Can the use of porn be problematic? It can be. However, porn addiction is not recognized by in the DSM. Sex addiction and porn addiction have been rejected from the DSM in terms of like diagnostics. Um, we know that the label of porn addiction is iatrogenic, meaning that the symptoms worsen when we give you the label. So when somebody cheats, they'll say, oh, it was a porn addiction or it was a sex addiction. Those are labels that I, and industries, very profitable industries that are easier to grasp. But I mean, most clinicians who work in the area of sex will recommend ethical porn. Uh, it's their tools that couples use together to get excited. A lot of the information out there, listen, I want to say, but I don't want to say like anecdotal is bad. If you have an experience and it is your experience, it's valid and it's real. But the data, the actual data mostly says otherwise, that most people use porn in a constructive way. Right. Like you're not in the in the bathroom masturbating and not getting your work done for the most part. Like, I mean, that could happen. That happens with food. That happens with a lot of things that we need or that we use in life. So, no, people use absolutely function. Listen, how many people watch porn and how many people are functioning human beings? Like we'd all be in big trouble if porn was just destroying our minds. Now, are there problems with porn? Well, there's problems with sex education and the lack thereof. And in the absence of comprehensive sex education, we know that porn is the number one source to which people turn. That makes it a problem because it is not created with education in mind, right? Mm-hmm. So, you you know, you're not watching... I don't know, Cirque du Soleil and saying, oh, I'm going to hang from my banister like that tonight. Or you're not watching somebody do a pole jump and thinking, I can do that. They're performers. And that's not even a fair, I think, I don't even think that's fair because there's no special effects with a pole jumper, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, those are special effects. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. And like, there are so many educators who are also porn performers who will explain it to you. They'll say, listen, there's fluffing, there's lube, there's discussion of boundaries, there's grooming, there's taking breaks, there's having water. Like, there are all these different things that happen. And we need to, I think, as adults, be a lot more realistic about porn. So we're able to watch Spider-Man and know that that's not real. Right. Mm -hmm. We're able to watch any Hollywood film and not tear it down and say like, oh, well, that's that's creating an unrealistic expectation. Sure. Some things in Hollywood absolutely do. But we tend to pick on porn. What about the the claim that it can desensitize you to the sex in your relationship because you get it so easily? Like you just a couple of clicks and you have it in front of you. So what would be desensitizing about that? Well, the way I've understood the claims is very much along the lines of if a guy consistently watches porn for a prolonged period of time, they get their, I'll call it a fix, through porn, and now all of a sudden there isn't as much of a need or an urge or a want to go and have sex with your partner. Yeah, I guess the question is, why are they doing that? Is it because the porn is more exciting? Is it because the porn is available to them? Is it because a partner isn't in the mood? Uh, I think that... It's not really, so we actually have data showing that it's not necessarily, uh, sorry, let me just think about what what the data says, sorry. Yeah, we have some data showing that porn isn't positively correlated with sexual dysfunction, like with erectile issues and mm. stuff like that. But in terms of desensitizing, I think what you're actually, what we're actually saying is that it's training you to respond to one specific thing, right? So you get accustomed to doing it in the same way. People will say the same thing about vibrators, right? But my thing is, if something feels good, why, what is the harm in doing it? Like, okay, so you're saying that it's causing harm to your relationship because you don't want to have sex with your partner, but it does not usually happen in that order. It's not like you're like, well, I'm going to watch porn and now I don't want to have sex with my partner. Usually it's because we're not having sex already and then I'm going to porn and then the mm-hmm. partner's getting mad that I'm going to porn. I know that's not always the case, but that is the more common occurrence. Mm-hmm. That, that seems to make more sense as you say it that way. That, yeah, that, and- there, there'd be Porn is the, is the result of, not the, yeah. 
Right. And I think that like it's an easy scapegoat. Right. It's easy to be like it's the porn that's ruining marriages. Mm. I mean, there's a lot going on in marriages that's ruining marriages. It's not just like the porn. <laughs> lack of communication, lack of investment in their sex lives, um, expectations that are unrealistic. Can we talk about expectations? I think that there's a lot in the way of expecting expecting or expectations rather of what particularly from a, a like from the man's perspective, what he's supposed to bring to the table, provide mm. and, and that sort of thing. And that if a person, if a man is not capable of doing those things, he is no longer capable to, to be the provider, to be the man, to, to support. Yeah, gender roles are a really tough one because they're ingrained. Like those are deep, deep tracks around, yeah. for example, money yeah, or power or even it's, things like height. Yes. Yeah. Right? <sighs> I don't know what it is, but like in the last two weeks, all I've seen are random posts on Instagram of like, guys who've gone to I, th I think it's south korea to get something done to their knees where they grow like three four inches it's supposed to be this like six month long painful procedure and again because it's a height thing you don't see the a lot of kevin hearts where they are successful and they get married to someone who's significantly taller than them you typically see the, the shorter guys struggle in that realm yeah gender roles suck they, they suck for everyone. And I'm not saying that you can't enjoy things that are stereotypical for your gender. Hmm. But it's, uh, you know, it's really ultimately it's sexism and it plays out poorly for all genders. Right. It, it really it sucks all around that we feel we have to behave a certain way because something either dangles between our legs or doesn't dangle between our legs. Like if we start at who asks whom out. Hmm. Right. There's this pressure and. There's so much pressure on. I'm talking in a, in a hetero context. I think queer folks have it fit, figured out in a in a better way. Um, not that we don't have our issues as well, but there's this idea that like you have to approach a woman and you have to be good at it and you have to be suave, and you have to. There's this pressure today. What I'm hearing is people just playing games with each other, kind of on both ends. Um, I think that's a really tough thing that you have to start by asking out. You have to make the first physical move. To propose. You have to propose, and now it's got like a, to be a big thing, right? Yeah. Like promposals. You've got to yeah. do all of these. Yeah, yeah. There is so much pressure, and I think that we just need to get back to basics in terms of like doing what feels good, doing what feels authentic. I know that word is like a bit of a buzzword, but what really works for you? So I I made the first move on my partner eight thousand years ago. Um, like I think it's, we're coming up on like twenty something years and nice. next month. Congratulations! Yeah, and. Um, he probably never would have said anything to me. And when I mention that kind of like casually, because I never really think anything of it, people will message me and they're like, did you really ask your husband out? Like, I didn't, I can't say I asked him out. It was more of a like, <laughs> want to hang sort of yeah. thing after the, but we worked in a bar together. And, um, but I think that there's this hope from people, from men who don't want to do the asking because doing the asking, doing 100% of the asking means you also shoulder the weight of 100% of the rejection, Absolutely. right? And rejection is, an, is a life skill that we do not learn to deal with. Like imagine, I wish we would start in kindergarten talking about like, what does it feel like when someone doesn't want to play with you? Like, what do you feel in your body? And it'd be so much easier to ask a five-year-old that than a 50-year-old. They'll tell you everything. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, what do you, f and, and then that becomes normalized. Like, you've already been asked that question rather than, like, learning about it when you're 35 years old sort of thing. So, yeah, the pressure to ask out, because I think these guys are like, oh, my gosh, there are women out there who will make the first move. Uh, and they're hopeful because maybe they don't have the confidence. Maybe they've been rejected and i'm not saying it's women's jobs to say yes either but maybe they've been rejected so many times that they just don't want to do it again maybe they don't fit the stereotype where they don't feel like they have enough of what is supposed to be in the man's bank hmm. and i don't just mean the money bank but in terms of the way you look in terms of the sound of your voice in terms of the way you dress in terms of your height all of these absurd pressures when we talk about things like height or hair color or other you know, physical attributes, people will say like, oh, it's just a matter of attraction. But attraction is just what you feel in a moment, right? And you can cultivate attraction. I think so many of us know that when I look at like what I'm attracted to, there is no type. Like really, 
There's no type at all. And we create a type, I think, for sociocultural reasons, right? There's also social capital in getting somebody who looks a certain way or has a certain amount of money. And like this is, you know, gets philosophical, but we have to get away from that. Yeah. Like we have to figure out we've got this short time on earth. Like that's, I just keep thinking that because all of a sudden I keep getting older and I'm like, where did the time go? Right? So we've got the short time on earth. You want to live this rich life. What does that mean to you? Like, do you want real connections? Do you want, like, it's when you say like, well, what happens when you don't agree when one person wants the threesome and the other doesn't? Like you have to decide, is a threesome a super important thing to me? Do you, know, do you know what I mean? Or on the other end, like, is it super important that they never have this experience for me? Like it goes both ways, mm -hmm. but we have to decide in dating, like what's, what's holding me back? Why am I playing? Like, I'm just hearing nothing but games, especially in Toronto. I hear from people complaining that there's, is this the case? I don't know. I'm not dating. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, you tell, you tell us it's, yeah, it's interesting. It's so weird though. And it's, it's so weird. Everything, even I was on hinge for a bit too. And it's, it's weird. Like why? What's what's like, I weird remember about it's, it? It's you'd have, for example, you have some some people would be like, oh, I had someone message me. First things, seventy kids. Oh, no, no hi. I'm like hello. Message <laughs> <laughs> like hello. No kids. Then it's like another like very like invasive person. I'm like I'm like I don't. I'm like I'm not. I'm not doing this interview. <laughs> that's, that's my response. I'm not doing this interview. But then it's like how much does it pay? Yeah. And it's and, it, and it's. It's, it's weird because it's even with the culture, it's like it's so, I don't know, because everything is, there's so much availability, I guess, right? So it's mm. everybody's very, it's okay. yeah, they're just like, okay, well, okay, who knows? Fine. The next option. Yeah. I, I get the feeling that people are protecting themselves. Like I get the feeling when you get, and I'm not saying it's okay, mm. but when you get a question like that, it's like they dated someone else and then they found yes, out yes. they had kids. And so we've been hurt. Right? Naturally, yeah. but like you gotta like let that sit, like you know, c come into that. Don't don't you don't have to jump into it right away and be like first question you're asking, like right like and it's even you see like oh like the best first date questions or something like that. It's like usually, I think you should just like just talk normal stuff first. Just if you get along, have a regular conversation with the person. I think I find it's just so just interview, 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 mm. interview, interview. I don't know. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Like, do you think people are assessing each other too early? Like, not I, I feeling I just assume it? people have things more figured out than I have. <laughs> so I think, like, you know, maybe it's like they just want, they know exactly. In my head, it's like, maybe you just know exactly what you want. Mm. If you have all these questions that are so, like, I guess, so make or break right at the beginning, it's like, I don't know, like, because no matter how you feel about maybe an answer, like, if that person might be able, might be, who they are might change your view on, how strongly you feel about that response, mm. right? Like if you, for example, don't like blondes, right? You know, I was like, I don't like blondes. Then you meet someone, it's like, okay, well, this person's actually cool. Or like, even like another, maybe someone's like, oh, maybe a bit jealous. You know me, you don't like that, but yeah, they have so many attributes with them that you're like, okay, a little jealousy maybe you can work with kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But all those things you have to get together with, opposed to just right away, just jumping into that, right? Yeah. I don't know, the interviewing thing is interesting. Like it says to me that you're not sitting in the moment and like enjoying yourself, mm. right? I think about going on a date and you know, of course I'm going on, a, I'm dating with, I'm dating my partner, right? We mm. go out and I'm like, I get to enjoy the wine. I get to enjoy the food. I get to enjoy wherever we are. I get to enjoy the conversation because I don't have to think about like, is he going to whip out a random kid or is he, you know what I mean? So I think it's a fear. Surprise. Yeah, surprise. Please don't, Brandon. <laughs> I know I don't have kids. <laughs> That's one of the advantages of having a uterus. I know I never had one, but <laughs> sorry, mom. <laughs> the dating thing is so hard. Like that. That's less my area. I hear all the stories, but it just sounds almost traumatic. It seems like a lot of people are just, they're navigating it with their guard up. And ah. it creates such a, a, a hard environment. It, see, that's the thing is, to some degree, you almost have to do that because there's a lot of people out there that are not serious. And I think that may even come down to a lot of people are not honest with their intentions. How do we get them there? 
Like that's that's what I want is for people, if you just want to screw around, say you just want to screw around. If you're like intent on getting married in six months, say it. Yeah. Like put it in your profile so that the two of you don't end up together. See, I think, well, that's the thing. I think, like I'm just thinking this out loud here. If I was dating again and was putting it on the profile and was just interested in screwing around and I put that on my profile in my head as I'm thinking this out loud, I'd think that that's a bad thing. That would limit my chances right. because then I might meet someone who may not be interested in that and there's not even an option to get to know that person and who knows where that could potentially go. So I'm like, you know what? Why don't I be as vague as possible, maybe even mysterious, and then see where, where that goes. But then people end up not sharing what they're really about yeah it's more about marketing ourselves than it is about finding connections maybe i think so i mean i th i remember <laughs> when i was on those dating apps i thought it was more so like i thought most of these girls were just about how do they promote their own social media profiles mm. like you can only dm me on my instagram and then you go on their instagram and it's just about promoting their instagram or their only fans or whatever it's just like they're using this as a marketing tool <laughs> okay okay <laughs> Then, I mean, are they being straightforward? Well, at the time, this was almost three years ago now. Um, most of the time, no. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Today, do you? No, not straightforward. So that's where we run into the problems. Like, I guess it's the same whether you're dating or you're in a long-term relationship. Like, you have to figure out what you want and be honest about it. But what I see in relationships is that we often don't know how to tell our partners what we want because we don't know what we want. And I think sometimes it's the same in dating. Like you sort of said that, well, if I just want to screw around, but then I'm, I also want to leave myself open. So we have to yeah. figure out like which one. And people don't want to commit to is it. I think the hardest thing, especially about online, is that you don't know somebody until you meet them in person, I find. Mm. And it's just like, when do you meet them? And it's like, it's, sometimes it's, it's, it's so hard to judge one meet. Because me, it's like, for me, it's like, I want to meet you right away because what's the point of even having a conversation if mm -hmm. we don't get to talk in person? Right, but then it's it's also from hearing from stories, and it's just like there's so many, been so many like negative experiences that like somebody's like I don't want to meet anybody. Like I'm gonna meet you. I gotta meet you in the mall at three o'clock in the day. Like you know, just because it's like obviously it's because you've been in a situation where you met somebody that was like terrible, right? So it's so funny. It's just hard getting, I guess, to to meet somebody on person. Because if me, if I, like if I don't get to, if I'm having a conversation with you and I don't know, you can't, like you need a voice to the name, you need a face to the mm -hmm. name. Like when they say certain things, you know how they're saying it. Hmm. It's just like, uh, whatever. It sounds tiring. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious, and again, not my area, but I'm curious, how do we make it less tiring? Because I know so many great people, like of all genders, of all mm. sexual, sexual orientations, who are like, I want to meet someone great, but I can't find someone great. And I'm like, well, I know a lot of great people. I mean, I don't exactly know what they're like in a dating or intimate relationship, but why aren't they finding each other? I think you got you to go out. You do. You really, but it's just, you, and you really you gotta have go to out. just be out. I think people also got used to being home mm -hmm. for two years. That now going out and meeting people, even though it's been, what, a year since the last lockdown or whatever it was, like I still think people are very hesitant to go out and actually meet people and put themselves out there but there's also the they don't want to get dressed the, i wanted to wear that? jogging pants like i'm like we just maybe need to make nightclubs where you can wear jogging yeah. pants and only dress from the top up yeah, you'd be yeah, willing yeah. to do that i love, I love events <laughs> that it's like that idea like it yeah that it's like clothing optional not clothing, not oh, clothing optional like <laughs> <laughs> but like the, the attire like how fancy one right. i don't like what has to be dressed up because then when i think it has to be it's so much more ego everybody Oh, okay. When, when, it, when you it, want a more relaxed environment. Yeah, like when it, if it's just wherever you want, it's I mean, people are find more just more calm, more more yeah. real who they are. Yeah, I, I could see that. I, I just think it's if people would go out more, they would meet more people. Like you, you have to. There's yeah. There's gonna be an element of rejection. There's gonna be an element of failure. You have to accept that that is a possibility. But it can't but be all on you as men either. Right no, in straight contexts, in yeah, straight yeah, contexts, we have to really think about how how do we make it. We, it's a narrative that needs to change not only for men but also for women. Like saying to women, "Oh, you just you have to do the asking," isn't fair either because there. It's I mean, it is fair, but it's a bigger question than just do the asking because there are so many layers to what how we are socially conditioned to be wanted to be pursued, right? So we have to, that's why I say gender roles are so problematic because we have to strip away at all of them. Uh, listen, when I see differentials in desire in couples, when 
straight couples, when the man wants it more than the woman, we work on that dynamic in like in a specific way. But when the woman wants it more than the man, there are other layers to peel back of that onion in terms of like his feelings of emasculation, her feelings of rejection. And, you know, we, we locate, I think, so much social capital for women in being sexually desirable. Mm. And so there are the, just these extra layers to work at. And it's very common too, right? Like when I used to see clients, I think 50% of my differential desire cases were with the woman wanting it more than the man. That doesn't mean that that's representative of what people are experiencing. Mm. That's not what I would say the data shows, but that's what I was seeing. Like the women were being proactive about it, but uh, the, the layers of like the hurt around, well, I'm a woman, therefore I should be this, I'm a man, therefore mm. I should be that, um, can be really challenging. And that's why I'd like, oh, gender, I wish we could just kind of tear it into pieces. And again, not reject, you know, just because I'm a woman, I'm not going to reject all forms that all, all things that are considered feminine, like I, I like to cook, I like to do certain things. Mm-hmm. But um, I think also, because I'm queer, I feel a little bit different. I think I have like a little bit, I've always had a lot more fluidity and flexibility in, in those things, mm. uh, in the way roles work. But I think for straight people, I don't want to say it's harder because it's it's definitely easier in lots of ways, but just negotiating gender is more rigid. Mm. Like, Wow. What a what an hour! <laughs> it sounds like we need a trilogy to this. There's so there's so there's much so to much, talk about. Yeah, yeah. and it's it is heavy. It is. Like we it could is. talk about yeah. orgasms and we can talk about like those types of things. Those are kind of easy. The sex is actually the easy part. When people you know say, mm. "Oh, you're a sexologist. You talk about sex." I'm like, "Sex is easy. Anybody can learn to have sex. Anybody can do the techniques. Anybody can practice the language. It's all the." personal self-confidence self-esteem piece the relational piece the dating piece even just getting to the bedroom uh, because i work with couples in long-term relationships sometimes they'll be frustrated that i'm focused first on the way they relate outside the bedroom but if you don't have playfulness there how are you going to have playfulness Mm. in the bedroom if you do the exact same thing in the exact same way every day for 10 20 years in the kitchen in the living room in the workplace how how do you expect to be creative in the bedroom, right? Mm -hmm. If you're not open about the way you feel, if you can't have deep, meaningful conversations about philosophy, about religion, about politics, about anything that interests you, how are you going to all of a sudden share like your fantasy about going into the forest with these like two men and two women on horseback and the humidity is 32%? Like, how are you going (laughs) to, how are you going to reveal all that if you can't start to reveal more of yourself in Mm -hmm. the living room or just at the kitchen table? Absolutely. Okay, so we definitely have to do this a third time. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. A pleasure. I hate to cut this conversation for Yeah. The ultimate guide to seduction and foreplay techniques and strategies for mind blowing sex. Yeah, so that's the title, but there's a lot more in there really around communication. And so there's kind of reflections on how to understand your own sexual values and your own needs. And then many, many, probably hundreds of conversation prompts. So language to actually talk about not just sex, but desire and eroticism yeah jess thank you so much a pleasure great seeing you you again likewise and uh we're definitely going to do this again for sure i appreciate it thank Thank you you. thank you poncho appreciate it